Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Let me invite you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 12 this morning. As you're finding your spot and, and settling in, let me remind you that uh, Thursday morning we have prayer at 6 a.m. via Zoom. If you don't receive those emails uh, with invitation to those or texts, uh, communicate with the church office and we'll make sure to get you that information on a weekly basis uh, so you're reminded that we are praying 6 a.m. via Zoom. Uh, and so I invite you to join us and, and be a part of that. It's always a great way to start our Thursday mornings for those of us who, who do that. And then uh, Pam mentioned in our announcements that uh, Ash Wednesday is coming up on, on February 22nd is Ash Wednesday. So we will have a similar worship service to what we had last year. It's very experiential. We'll be moving around. There will be a few different stations. It's intended for families to, to do a, together. Um, you don't have to have kids or teens, though, if you're, you're uh, adults and want to be a part of it. It's, it's a really cool experience, and I think you, you will enjoy it. Everybody would enjoy it. Uh, and so that's coming up on Wednesday, uh, February 22nd. And that is the beginning of the season of Lent, which is 40 days leading up to our celebration of Easter. And so I'd invite you to consider joining us next week. We'll have a devotional guide that will be available for the season of Lent. And that's just a, a resource that we offer as a congregation to anybody who would like to, to follow along and, and be guided in your quiet times through the season of Lent and join us for that. So that'll be available starting next week. And there are a couple of Sundays still before, before Lent and you'll be able to get that. And then I wanted to mention, we sent out a postcard this week for family camp, or maybe last week. You should have gotten a, a postcard, a save the date for family camp. Uh, we sent out the postcard, and then I immediately secured a speaker. And so we don't have the speaker on there, but I wanted to let you know we do have a speaker. His name is Aaron Duvall, and he comes, uh, he's brother-in-law of Valerie Schatz, I believe. And now... Brother-in-law Valerie Schatz, you know, family connection, uh, but highly recommended by Brooke Schatz. And that says something to me because, you know, my brothers-in-law would never, never recommend me. So I'm, I'm certain that that means uh, he'll, he'll be great. Uh, so I'm excited. I'm excited for that. That's coming up in, mark your calendar, June 23rd, 24th, 25th. And it'll be at Camp Sanders. Looking forward to, to doing that for our second, second year of doing family camp. During this season, I've been talking about the important thing that God does in us, which is shaping our souls. God is at work in us. We've been talking about this idea of spiritual formation, being formed by God. And then on Sunday mornings, more than spiritual formation, we've been talking about those, those habits of our mind and, and ways of being that either intentionally or unintentionally can make us less like Jesus. And I've been talking about spiritual deformation. These, these are the quiet ruminations of our hearts that, that take us away from the direction that Jesus would, would shape us as his disciples and make us, make us less like Jesus. 
And today I'm in Romans chapter 12. It's a passage that attempts to point us in the direction of becoming more like Jesus, and it is a super thick passage. I'm going to try to do more than could be done on a Sunday morning. I, I counted at one point in just three paragraphs, I think, in Romans chapter 12, there were something like 22 commands. And so, you know, there's a couple of things a preacher could do with a passage that has 22 commands. One would be to slow down. Uh, and, and, you know, if I took one of those commands a week, it would just be, uh, what, a five-month series, I think. So I could do that, but I'm not going to. And so the, the other option would be to try to, to synthesize and distill and, and try to create some categories for, for these commands. And I think that what Paul is trying to do in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, is, who wrote the book of Romans, he has a very clear focus in Romans chapter 12, even though he's got, you know, a, a short section of 21 commands that seem sort of like a variety of different directions that he's taken us. I think the sum total of what Paul is trying to do in Romans chapter 12 is, is pretty clear. And, and so as we, as we get into Romans chapter 12, uh, I, I think we, we get clear direction on the way that Paul, Paul envisions, the Apostle Paul envisions God shaping us. So let's just begin in Romans chapter 12. Follow along with me, if you will. I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So Paul, Paul tells us to, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, and he says, because of all that God has done for, for you, Paul's letters, when the Apostle Paul wrote a major chunk of the New Testament, and several of his letters have this, this same pattern, where he begins, the first half of the letter has to do mostly with theology and theory and doctrine, and, and then the second half of the letter, he moves on to, to more practical matters about how we live out that theology and doctrine. And, and so, the Romans 12 marks the turn in the, the book of Romans from that more theoretical doctrine piece of the letter to the more, the more practical. And Paul doesn't do it with lots of fanfare. He doesn't say, okay, we've been through all the doctrine. Now let's talk about how this really looks in your day-to-day -day lives. But he does give us this, this little clue because all that God has done for you almost as if saying, he's saying, you, you can't really understand the practical aspect of your faith without understanding all that has happened up to this point. You can't understand how Christianity relates to your life if we don't have, if we don't keep in mind all that we have been through. And during the fall, I preached from Romans uh, chapter 1 through chapter 8, and we talked about a lot of the theory and doctrine behind what we believe as, as Christians. 
And it would be possible, it would be possible to hear practical preaching from Romans chapter 12 and beyond, and it would be possible to, to hear preaching like that and think, okay, the Christian life then, it must all be about, it must be all about um, having good mental health. It's all about, you know, this uh, therapeutic sort of faith that just makes us feel good about things uh, and, and we feel good. Or it's all about just having good relationships with other people. And that's just the sum total of Christianity if, if we were only to look at some of the practical pieces that, that Paul writes. But Paul says you, you can't forget all that we've been through to get to where we are. We are, we are offering ourselves as living sacrifices to God because of all that God has done. And so we have to remember that all of Romans has been focused on, on laying out God's plan for salvation for, for humanity. He starts with the idea that everybody, all of humanity, is lost without God, needs God's work in their lives to, be, to, to, to have a hope in a future, to, to have eternal life, and to have real life in this world. And, and he talks about how Jesus came to the earth to be the perfect savior for humanity, to, to be the one who could restore humanity and allow people to have a relationship with God. And then Paul talks about how by the power of Jesus's death and resurrection from the dead, he, humanity has the power to live in victory over sin. We don't have to be stuck in sin for all of our, all of our existence, but we can actually have victory over sin, and we can live this life that he describes as life in in Christ, uh, where our thoughts and, and our lives are shaped by God's work in us. And, and so here, finally, he, he moves on to, to this more, more practical piece, and he says the, the first thing you have to understand, if we're going to put all of this theology and theory into practice, is the first thing we do is offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. In, in response to all that God's done for you, I plead with you, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a holy and living sacrifice, the kind that God will find acceptable. So, our response to understanding our theology is to, to willingly put ourselves in God's hands. To say, okay God, I understand what you have have offered me. I understand that you, you have sent Jesus to be my Savior, that you've raised Jesus from the dead. I understand that. And so, God, because I understand enough about that, I'm not, never going to understand it fully, but because I understand enough about it, God, I'm going to put my life in your hands. I'm going to let you, God, do with my life as you will. You can take my life and so we, we offer, offer ourselves to God, and, and Paul, the Apostle Paul says in verse 2 then that that means we, we let God shape the way we think. He says, don't conform to the pattern of the world, don't conform to the, to the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And, it, and really what God wants to do in us, it, it begins, it, it has its roots in our allowing God to change the way we think. Now, I tend to be, I tend to be a pretty academic kind of guy. 
Like, I like classes. I like grammar, you know. I'm, I have a German word in my sermon today. Can't wait to get to that. And I, I'm kind of, I do a lot of my living in between my ears. And, and so maybe I pounce just a little too much on this idea that Paul says, in order to be transformed, God's got to change the way you think. But I, I think there is a lot to this idea that if, if we are going to change how we live in this world, if we are going to allow God to tell us how we are to live, and if we're going to experience the life that God wants us to live, there's a lot of work that has to be done in, in our thoughts. The way that we, we think about ourselves, the way that we think about the world. And, and today I want to specifically address the way that we think about ourselves in relationship to the world. Uh, we, we are so very keenly self-aware in, in our world today. We are, we are wired to think about us first. Like, and that's just, that's just humanity, right? We are, it's for the good of the survival of the species, right? <laughs> it's self-preservation. It's, it's not an all bad thing. But we are, we are so keenly self-aware at times that it can be difficult for us to see and to honor what God is doing in other people. Um, it, it can be difficult for us to, to relate and empathize or to be happy for others. And the author C.S. Lewis, he wrote a lot about our formation to be more like Jesus. And, and one, of the, one of the ways that he talks about our thoughts is when he talks about humility. There's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis. He, he says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, that is, humility is not thinking, oh, I am a miserable worm. That is not what humility is. C.S. Lewis, he goes on, he says, humility is thinking of yourself less. It's just allowing me to take up less real estate in my thoughts. And that's just a matter of humility. I think a lot of Christian discipleship boils down to where we focus our thoughts. Uh, moving forward in this passage, we'll, we will see how our renewed minds can, can bring glory to God in ways that if we're only, only allowing our old thoughts to play around in our brains, we can't bring glory to God. And it's in this renewing of our minds uh, that, that we become different from the world around us. This begun, began with uh, don't don't follow the customs and patterns of this world, but be transformed. When, when we allow God to shape what, what happens in our minds, we start to look different from the customs and patterns of this world. Paul talks a little bit about it in, in verses 3 through 5 here. He says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. So 
if we just read verses 1 and 2, offer yourselves as a holy sacrifice, offer your body as a holy sacrifice to, to God, be transformed by letting God shape the way you think, it, it would be easy for that to become a me and my faith kind of, of spirituality. This is what God is doing in me, and it is God's little private work that is only for me. If I offer myself as a sacrifice, if I offer myself to God completely, then I will experience God's good will for me. Isn't that wonderful? And that is, that's an easy way to read just verses 1 and 2, but we have to read verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 too, because as Paul goes on, he, he says, God's good will is not only for you. God's good will has a purpose beyond in your head. It has a purpose beyond the life of one individual. God's good will is for his kingdom, which is at work in this world. God's good will is for, for all of creation to experience. And so we, we are warned by Paul that, that God's good will may not be for our sole benefit. That the good thing that God wants to do in you might be for the benefit of somebody else. And, and so as I've been thinking about the, the unspiritual practices, the ways that we are deformed in, in our journey toward being like Christ, I, I, I see uh, this, this exaggerated sense of self-worth that Paul talks about as a small piece of the puzzle. Now, I want to I make a caveat here. I want to make a caveat. This is, I have to nuance are you ready for some nuance? Okay, I'm, I'm nervous in our culture and in our world, in the current state of our world, where we live in a world where, where depression and anxiety, clinical depression and clinical anxiety are, are significant problems. Like there are, statistically speaking, there are numerous people in our congregation right now who, who are dealing with these issues. That's, that only mentions clinical, like diagnosed and and know what they're up against, but then there's also distorted views of personality because of abuse and, and trauma that people carry around and, and don't even realize it at times. A healthy sense of self is not a bad thing. Uh, we, we need to remember God loves each and every one. God loves you. God values each and every one deeply. And, and the church is better because each one of you has come and, and been a part of, of this this morning. Like, Lewiston First Naz is, is better because each of you, regardless of how you see yourself in fitting into this body, we are better for each and every one who is here. The kingdom of God is better in this world because you have said, I'm going to follow Jesus. God, God has great, sees great value in you. But I believe the, the issue and the, the unspiritual practice that is being highlighted in this passage is a sense of self-worth that depends on our comparison with other people. Paul says, don't look at yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Trans being transformed from the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world is a pattern that says, uh, look at what they have. 
I must not be very valuable because they have more. Or the pattern of this world says, look at how little they have. I must be pretty hot stuff because I have more. In the church, we, we do this. We do this in the church. We, we say, I'll never be as spiritual as, as Alyssa Clark. My goodness. I know I won't. But... <laughs> or we, we say, well, well, at least I'm not a sinner like... <laughs> I didn't hear, I don't... This comparison, this comparison leads us to, to valuing other people or seeing other people as less than, uh, than they really are in the eyes of God. And, but more destructively, it, it leads us to seeing ourselves as more than or less than what we really are in the eyes of God. And, and to correct any comparison that we might do, Paul directs us to consider how we need each other, how we need each other. He goes immediately from this idea of uh, valuing or evaluating yourself realistically. He moves from that immediately into this imagery of the body, that we need one another, that we are all a part of one body. We, we need each other. Christians belong to one another. Just like your hand and your foot, they belong to your body and they belong to each other. And, and your hand, like it, it can't, if you cut it off, it will just die, right? Um, the body will, will continue on, but it will lack something without the hand, right? Uh, so Paul says the, the church is like the body. We belong to one another. We're all part of this. And God has given each of us a specific role to fulfill in the body. And so in verses 6 through 8, he gives some of the specifics. In Romans 12, 6 through 8, it says, In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If, you, if it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. This is a list of what we call spiritual gifts. In, in the church, we talk about spiritual gifts. There's a couple of different passages in the Bible that speak directly to various types of spiritual gifting. And I have had just a new thought about spiritual gifting to me. This is probably old hat to you guys. Uh, you've probably thought this way before. But for me, spiritual gifting has always been, in, in my mind, this idea that the Holy Spirit comes upon each of us and then just sort of magically, we can do things that we couldn't do before. And so the classic example maybe is like uh, the gift of tongues. And we, we have seen this where, where people are specifically gifted in the ability to speak a different language. Uh, we had an experience in Ecuador. This is a great story. Uh, we'll just take a tangent and tell the story of, of uh, Brenda Dayton. Uh, she, she had been struggling to learn Spanish 
an, an American missionary struggling to learn Spanish. She, she went to a retreat with a bunch of missionaries from all over South America and North America. And uh, she, she sensed that uh, the Lord had given her just to say everything's going to be okay to a, to a certain pastor. The pastor was from Brazil, so his first language was Portuguese. He sp spoke great Spanish as well. And she went and, and talked to him and just, you know, the Lord, I really feel like the Lord's told me this. She just stumbling through, just felt like she couldn't get two words out in a row in Spanish correctly. It was just, just felt terrible about it. Pastor looked at her and said, you're a prophet. The Lord has just spoken perfect Portuguese through you to me. And the Lord has given me incredible hope about the situation in our family's life. We've seen it. We've seen this, this incredible gifting of the Holy Spirit at times like that. And I think that's often the way, the only way we think that spiritual gifts could work. That like, I, uh, you know, I would be, I would be so gifted with kindness, like the, the Holy Spirit would work on me, that I'd be so kind that I would almost be as kind as Greg McCracken. Like, I could get maybe to, like, most of the way to the level if the Holy Spirit did a real work in me. But I, I think there's another way in which spiritual gifting can work. When the, when the Holy Spirit works on us, as I've been reading uh, on Wednesday nights, we're going through this book by Dallas Willard, and, and Willard says an interesting thing that he equates the spirit, the spirit, our spirit, our human spirit, with the deciding part of us. He says that our spirit is the part that we decide to do things or not to do things. Our spirit is our will, he says. And, and so I just got to thinking, maybe spiritual gifting is actually working in that spirit part of me that is the part that is deciding and wanting to do things or not do them. And so when, when Paul talks about spiritual gifting and he talks about uh, let's take serving others. I think we have a lot of people in this congregation. I know we have a lot of people in this congregation who have the spiritual gifting of serving others. And the way that it works in them is that they, they don't have to decide that they want to serve someone. God is working in their hearts and they love to serve other people. It just make, it makes them come alive to serve other people. Because it's their spiritual gifting. It is the way God has rewired their hearts. They, they are servants by nature because God has changed the will inside them to want to, to serve. I believe that each of these spiritual gifts, if, 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 you, feel, if you feel great joy in giving and giving generously, I think that might be the the work of the Spirit in you. If, if you feel great joy in teaching and teach well, I, I think that's probably a spiritual gifting. This is the way that God is operating in our hearts to make us who God wants us to be. Now, you need to hold on to, to the idea of spiritual gifting. I'm coming back to it. Please hold on to it. Don't forget that in the next five minutes, okay? Can you do that? We're going to move on and continue reading from Paul in verses uh, 9 through 13. In Romans 12, 9 through 13, he says, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. 
and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. And keep on praying. That's a pretty good verse for us today, isn't it? Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. Verse 13, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. See, spiritual gifting, I believe, is Paul is just unfolding a little bit more of this idea of spiritual gifting in this paragraph here. I believe he, he's pointing to the reality that spiritual gifting, when God shapes our will and our want-tos and our desires in our hearts, it is good for relationships. It is good for relationships. It's good for our relationships with God, our relationship with God. Like the, the last part of a, verse 11 there, he says, work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Verse 12, uh, that rejoice in our confident hope be patient in trouble, keep on praying. When we are allowing the Spirit to shape us and shape our will and our spirit, we are, we are growing in relationship with God. We are growing closer to God. But it also is good for our relationships with others. Verse 9, Paul says, don't just pretend to love, really love. In verse 10, uh, love each other with genuine affection and take the light in honoring each other. In verse 13, when God's people are in need, be ready to help. Always be eager to practice hospitality. See, if we think that spiritual gifting is only, again, for our soul benefit, we miss out on so much of what God would do if, if we would take advantage of the gifting of the Spirit that He has given us. If He is transforming us by renewing the way we think, by shaping the way we want to in this world, the things that, we, that make us come alive, God is going to drive us into deeper and better relationships with God himself and with our brothers and sisters. But it doesn't end in the church as we read in verses 14 through 16, where the Apostle Paul says, bless those who persecute you. That's a really nice passage when it was just about the church, wasn't it? Wasn't it? I mean, we were just having fun. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will... Yeah, pray that God will bless them. It really says that. That is what... That is, those are the words of the Apostle Paul. Those who curse you, bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. And weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Paul presses in here to those places where we might be least likely to want to practice our spiritual gifts. I really like to rejoice with people I like. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm good at rejoicing with friends and family. I went and I watched two nephews play basketball this week, and they both had career-high point totals. I rejoiced. 
I think I embarrassed them. I was rejoicing so much in the, in the stands. Paul, Paul puts the instruction to be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep right after talking about those we would prefer to curse. Those who persecute us, don't curse them. Pray for their blessing. Pray that God would bless them. Okay, are you ready for the German word? There's a German word for our tendency to, to not do this. Uh, you can correct my my pronunciation, I don't speak German, uh, but the word is schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is, is uh, taking, taking pleasure in the misfortune of others. Uh, the pattern of this world is schadenfreude, is taking pleasure in the misfortune of others. We all do this just a little bit. Sports are all about schadenfreude, right? Uh, we all do this. We all have that friend who's a really obnoxious fan of a team that we don't really care about, but we just take a little bit of pleasure when that team loses because we know that our friend who's an obnoxious fan, he's not here today, so we won't mention him. But <laughs> Paul says we, we are supposed to be the opposite of that, though, right? We all know that. We all know that. Paul says uh, be the opposite. We, we are supposed to to take pleasure in the good fortune even of those. Paul says we're supposed to take pleasure in the good fortune of even those who persecute us. We, we aren't supposed to curse. We're supposed to pray that God would bless them. We're supposed to be happy with those who are happy and rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, the... This is, this is much more difficult than, than even just, you know, being happy for that obnoxious friend. Um, this, is, this is an area that Paul is pushing us. I think this is beyond Christianity 101, I think. I, th I think this is, this is hard for everybody, even those who, who have walked long journeys in discipleship. To consider how, how can I be happy with those who are happy when, when I'm not happy that they are happy? How can I weep with those who, who weep when I'm kind of happy that they're not getting their way? Let me, let me say two, two quick things and then give us a little bit of direction moving forward. Two, the first thing I would say is this, I think this is an area where we are called to, to push into a little bit more because this is a first Naz, Lewis and First Church of the Nazarene superpower. Uh, we, we have, as a congregation, I believe we have the spiritual gifting of, of being happy for those who are happy and weeping with those who weep. That's not to say that we do it perfectly in every situation, but I think this is an area where where, you know, maybe we're, we're a six out of 10. I, I think that's, that's decent. And I, I think this is an area where God could really do some amazing things in us. If we were willing to rejoice with those who rejoice, even, even when it 
kind of twists us up a little bit and we don't know exactly how to do it. Even when it challenges us just a little bit. I, I think we're already working on the margins in this area in some, some pretty powerful and, and great ways. But I, I think as, as God continues to shape us, this is an area where, where God has already given us some ability. And if we would press in to our culture in places where the church maybe isn't rejoicing, then maybe we could find a way to be the church and rejoice with those who rejoice. Maybe we could find a way to weep with those who weep, even even when it's scary and we're not quite sure how to do it. I think just maybe, just maybe, this would be something that God could use us. The, the second thing I, I would say about this is that long, long-term stories of, of redemption, stories of redemption that, that go through long periods of seeming darkness, are often the stories where there have been believers rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep along the way. When, when relationship is maintained and, and when believers are willing to check their pride and check their desire to, to speak judgment into a situation, when believers are willing to, to just simply rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Those are often the stories where we see long-term restoration and reconciliation. I've seen it in my own family. I see it, it they're not my stories, but I'm like privy as pastor to getting to see some of these stories even now unfolding in our congregations, in, in our congregation where families have been willing to rejoice with those who rejoice, even when they weren't quite sure if they were able to rejoice alongside. And they were able to see redemption through it. The wisdom of Scripture here is, reminds us to let relationship be, be, be the first value for us, to, to not let our desire to, to compare to say, well, I'm better than that person than Kevin's. To, to not let our desire to, to speak the truth, lovingly or not, be the first thing. But for us to be willing to say, what's probably most important in, in these situations is that, that we would love, that we would rejoice with those who rejoice. I believe that's the wisdom of Scripture coming to us. Let me, let me just now give the way that I think we do this best. And it has to do with spiritual gifting. God has, is working in us, right, to want certain things, to want to act certain ways, to, to enjoy, you know, the, the list is prophesying and, and uh, teaching, uh, serving, encouraging, giving generously. God, God is wiring us to, to do these things as, as our spiritual gifting. I believe that we are, we are called in those hard places to use our spiritual gifting. 
uh, when, when it is hard for us and we're not sure if we can rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We're not sure how we can weep with those who weep. I think that's when we go, we go and see, okay, God has made me so I really enjoy serving. How could I just serve in, in this situation? How, could I, how can I come along and use the, the gifting that God has given me to, to maybe continue to build relationship and continue to, to rejoice, even if maybe, maybe I don't feel particularly like rejoicing. This is hard. This is really hard. And, and for this, we need God's work in us. We need to continue to see God move in our hearts. Uh, the, the way that God works in us is by his grace um, given to us in, in each, each moment. God bless you as you go. Go and be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You are dismissed.